are listening to Haunt and Gather, a paranormal podcast about the new American folklore in the great outdoors. I hope you're feeling festive because we are talking about a Christmas tradition that has both always been lost and always been found, the Christmas ghost story. And we'll be sharing our very own true Christmas ghost story with you this December. We have it all, folks. Lights in the Woods, Charles Dickens, Hessian Soldiers, and my spiced butter cider recipe. You're very welcome. So cozy up and have a happy holiday. Let's go on an adventure. everybody welcome back to haunt and gather a paranormal podcast covering the new american folklore in the great outdoors i'm your host jack Krisky, and i'm ben Bagensky. merry christmas one that's, and all that's right merry christmas uh because man it is it's almost here i've been waiting i've been waiting so long and it's oh finally here the turkey's not even cold ben well, now that's the thing is for me, Thanksgiving is one of the feasts of the holiday season. It is the one that comes between Halloween and Christmas, which starts November 1st. I mean, fair, putting aside all of the history with the pilgrims and that wonderful hokey story they feed us in, you know, elementary school. I like Thanksgiving as a standalone holiday. It's a great time for the family to get together. I grill a turkey every year. Uh, you know, it's a whole big it's a whole big thing. And no, it's not the headliner that Christmas is or, you know, holding the special spooky place in my heart that Halloween does. But I mean, I, I think you're I think you're giving this turkey a raw deal. <laughs> OK, but I'm just saying, what do you do between November 1st and Thanksgiving? What what music are you playing in the background? What what thematic lo-fi beats do you have on? All right, folks, so we'll agree to disagree for now. But if you could all stay for the end of today's episode, we'll have some shopkeeping for you all and then stay through that. And we're going to have that cider recipe that uh, we brought up in the last episode. We also have a surprise for you all at the end of the episode that we can't wait to tell you. Oh, it's it's going to be fun. I'm excited to share it. But first, we have a little bit of uh, Victorian Christmas history to cover. Well, this December, we are going to be talking about Christmas traditions and uh, all December's going forward. The rest of the year, we're talking about strange things that we found in the wood and picking them apart. But for the darkest time of the year, we want to focus on the holidays and the dark folklore around it. And I have to say, doing some digging and research, man, there's a lot of really cool kind of dark Christmas traditions, but the coolest that we found by far has to be ghost stories. That's the thing. We've always known that there is a tradition with Christmas and ghost stories. It's even in the lyrics to Christmas songs. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases, long long ago no it's very true and before we even knew that this was a thing that we wanted to do uh we 
kind of got our own cool Christmas ghost story that we got to live firsthand. Less cool at the time, really cool afterwards. That's right. So while I did just say that not all episodes will be about us running through the woods scared, we will be talking about that time on Christmas we were running through the woods scared. No, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, I will we'll get into that later. But first, uh, why don't you go ahead and do a little bit of a little bit of lead in. Give us some history on the tradition of Christmas ghost stories. Okay, so first I'm going to address the Christmas elephant in the room. Charles Dickens, the rock star of Christmas. Wait a minute, the the rock star of Christmas? I mean, that's the only thing that you could call this man. He was a juggernaut of the holiday season. He is why we experience it today as we do. Uh, I had actually sent you a link uh, from Gastro Obscura, which I think is the greatest blog ever. Uh, Drink like Dickens with the author's punch recipe. Uh, You read that, yeah? Oh, I did. And... I had to I had to take a moment because they formatted the recipe the same way every recipe site does with, you know, an article and a life story before the recipe. And then I got over it because it's gastro obscura and that, of course, that's what they do. But the recipe itself yeah. looks really good. Uh, man, there's there's lemon, there's nutmeg, there's rum, there's cognac. Dickens knew how to party. So what's fun about this recipe is it was already a dying art in his day. The, the punch bowls shame, were kept up in the rack in a tavern collecting dust. He wanted to bring this back as a tradition. He would take these classic traditions and then he would take stories like A Christmas Carol and he would try to immortalize these things. And that's a big part of why we have a a vision of kind of a Christmas that never was. This guy was nostalgic about things that were partially celebrated, always going out of style. And then we nostalgically look back at what we assumed was a real Christmas that he celebrated. Oh, that's that's so surreal, though. So most of what we know about modern Christmas was literally just like Dickens's rose colored glasses. It was Dickens's rose-colored glasses in the fact that Queen Victoria at some point in time liked German Christmas trees, and now we got what we got. Huh. Well, I'm learning things today. Well, there is another thing with Dickens, which is the Christmas ghost story. Now, what I had heard, which I haven't really been able to back up since looking into Dickensian ghost stories for this episode, I thought that ghost stories were also out of style he hoped to bring them back and he wrote the he wrote the christmas carol and he killed it he killed the ghost story because he wrote such a good christmas ghost story one ghost story to rule them all i mean in fairness it is kind of the quintessential it is the christmas ghost story right you have scrooge you have the three ghosts changing your ways finding the spirit of christmas he he sort of nailed it all in one novel He did. And that's the thing. He didn't kill the Christmas ghost story like I had originally accused him of. He was kind of in the middle of a wave. There have always been tales of the supernatural with the darkest time of year. And that did start to become formalized with Christmas ghost stories before his time. 
it never really made a move to the United States for a variety of reasons, one of them being our favorites, the Puritans. But there's also what came after. And that's where we can see how the Christmas Carol is a very unique Christmas ghost story. What makes it the perfect Christmas ghost story? It's not just a ghost story that happens to take place during Christmas. It's also moralistic. It It is. And that's kind of one of the coolest parts about it. I mean, you have Ebenezer Scrooge, who is the embodiment of Screw it. He's kind of the embodiment of capitalism. Um, You know, no, Bob Cratchit, you can't go home to your family. I need you to work late and finish these ledgers. And the literal spirits of Christmas come and either convince him to change his ways through reminding him of what it's all about to showing him what he's doing to people. And then lastly, what awaits him afterward if he fails to change his ways? You know, it, you know, sort of a, a three part act. You know, Dickens kind of nailed the whole moralistic lesson. Right. And it's still relevant today. I mean, the ghosts are basically Reddit anti-work. And you also have a changing sort of zeitgeist in how people are approaching the paranormal at this point in time. Uh, So a lot of these a lot of these themes are visited by uh, uh, an article that I found in Clark's World, Ghost of Christmas Past, the Victorian Christmas Ghost Story Tradition. It's by Carrie Cesarego. And she talks a lot about how these ghost stories were written largely at a point in time when there was a scientific revolution happening, but you also had the spiritualists. Writers would capture the fascination of the ghost story, yet they also took it tongue-in-cheek. Even Dickens and other stories of his kind of rolled their eyes at the idea of people believing in ghosts. When it's not something overtly paranormal, like the Christmas Carol, you end with a different kind of traditional ghost story, something that doesn't really appear to appeal to modern readers because a lot of us do believe in ghosts, especially if you believe you listen to a podcast like this one. A lot of these Christmas ghost stories end with a rational explanation. That's actually a big part of the theme. Um, I actually have it here in another book, uh, Gothic Christmas Short Stories. This is uh, by Flame Tree Publishing. And in it, there is a story called uh, Thurlow's Christmas Story. It's by John Kendrick Bangs. And the very last line is a ghost story without any solution strikes me as being about as useful as a house without a roof. That's something that I've come across a lot in these ghost stories. At the end, there needs to be a reveal. Oh, it was just a bedsheet. So look back at the Christmas Carol. Those were ghosts. Not only that, they taught a rich man enough to turn his life around in one night. After Dickens, people became too cynical to believe in these things. So they went from being moralistic Christmas lessons to just scary events. Sometimes that didn't end up even being real. That really is why the Christmas ghost story went out of style. No one had the heart for it anymore. 
that's both really fascinating and super heartbreaking. I mean, maybe I just have a sense of childlike wonder, but Christmas ghost stories just seems like such a neat tradition, right? I mean, why wouldn't you want to tell stories about the paranormal, especially as it pertains to the holiday? I mean, Christmas for me has always been a time of joy and spending, you know, spending time with family. You know, the gifts to me, you know, when you're a kid, you love the gifts. But lately, you know, it's kind of a sideshow. I'm just I relish the time that I have with those that I care about. You would think that Christmas is the perfect time to tell stories about ghosts or those that have passed on. Absolutely. Uh, Dickens, again, as I mentioned, wasn't afraid of telling a moralistic story. And in his story, The Christmas Tree, he talks about people coming home for Christmas and sharing their ghost stories, even though, as we see in his other works, he didn't necessarily believe in ghosts. So he agrees with you on that one. And luckily, since this point in time, we're all crazy again. We love hearing about those dead things. It's great. (laughs) Now, it definitely led us to chase things that go bump in the night on more than one occasion, Speaking of, we do very much have our own true Christmas ghost story to discuss. Yes. So, with all of that in mind, and the tradition of Christmas ghost stories having briefly been explored, we wanted to tell you listeners about our Christmas ghost story. And this isn't just, again, a scary thing that happens to take place in the winter. Ah, no. This is a Christmas ghost story. You won't be disappointed. Right. So without further ado, let me give all of you some background on what has come to be known as the Hessian Village. So back in the mid 2000s, when I was but a but a humble teenager, I worked uh, as a camp counselor for a summer camp. And this particular summer camp is in a very old part of the state that I live in. Um tons of deep history with native americans um early settlers in this case the revolutionary war so i mentioned hessians for those that don't know hessians in one sentence are german mercenaries that the british hired to help fight the colonials as soon as they realized that they were dealing with a little bit more than just some dirty colonist farmers that they were going to just sweep aside and you know put all of this behind them i'm also going to jump in real quick to say they make the best ghost stories. Headless Horseman, Hessian. Hessian. Hessians, the Cadillac of ghosts. It doesn't get any better than Hessians. So this particular group of Hessians, uh, they were out in Connecticut and they were supposed to set up a bit of a raiding camp out by one of the main roads. Uh, The hope there was to either sabotage supply lines or directly attack troops under the command of Israel Putnam. Uh, We're not a history podcast, so I'm not going to trouble you too much with the facts and figures. But they settled down in fall of, it was the 1770s specific, right? I want to say it was like 74. Um, But they go ahead and they settled in uh, in the fall to overwinter at this camp. And really not much was heard of them since. Uh, It being the time that it was, there wasn't a whole lot of communication back and forth, couriers, runners occasionally, but it wasn't unheard of to lose track of a unit for a period of time, especially over the winter months. But spring comes around 
and a British cavalry unit decides to go ahead and swing out and see what on earth those mercenaries had gotten up to. We're paying them after all. You know, are they earning their keep? What are they doing? So they go ahead and sweep up there into the woods, and lo and behold, they find the camp. It wasn't hard. Uh, they'd actually dug out foundations and built cabins, and they actually had a pretty solid setup going. There was just one small problem. When that cavalry troop came upon the camp, all of the Hessians were dead. And you might think, well, it's wartime. Someone probably got to them. But no, there were no obvious signs of fight. They didn't starve. There was still food. They had firewood. I mean, for goodness sakes, they even still found beer in some of the cabins. There was no obvious cause. But there's a war on and we can't go ahead and just uh, investigate this. So they buried them, took what supplies they needed, and they moved on. And the war continued. The, you know, the colonials won. We have the United States that we know today. But the Hessians, it seemed, never fully left. Uh, up at that area, you can still to this day see the dugout pits and the old foundations of their cabins. Um, not much else. It's been, you know, it's been a couple of centuries now. But people that hike up there routinely report very strange happenings. And the folklore of the Hessian village plays a very huge part in essentially, you know, camp culture, if you will, uh, between the counselors and the kids that go there. There's even you know, one dedicated night of the week that there's a small group of staff that will go ahead and take kids up there, hike up to the Hessian village, tell stories around, you know, the fire pit that's up there um, and kind of just recount some of the weird things that have occurred. Now, me joining on as a camp counselor I dug deep into this because, surprise, I find it fascinating. Hmm. And, man, uh, there were already a number of encounters and stories and just things that occurred. Um, you know, there would be groups of staff that would go up there independent of the campers. You know, some staff-only stuff that you can't do with the kids when the kids are around. Sharing some of the more, you know, risky stories or some of the more, you know, uh, exciting or scary ones that may not be appropriate for some of the younger children. And um, the big one came down to there, there seemed to be rules where you would go up there. And as you're walking up the path, uh, the path comes right out of an open field at the northernmost part of the camp. It follows the originally named boundary trail that covers the boundary of the camp property. And if you go into the woods and you hear a bird call. The stories differ. Sometimes it's an owl. Sometimes it's like a raven. And you hear it call once. That's usually enough to give you pause. It tends to be something of a warning or an omen, but it's urging you, hey, turn around. Uh, if you ignore that and you continue further into the woods, you're supposed to hear that call again. And usually at this point in time, the staff gets scared enough or unnerved enough that it's like, okay, bad night to come up. Something doesn't want us there. Let's go back. There was one night where at the urging of a bunch of younger, more excited staff members, they wanted to push on and ignore it. So then the third call comes and stories at this point get kind of fragmented, but long story short, it was early in the evening, about 9, 
And that group was chased out of the woods by a very large bird that swooped down at like dive bombing height right over their head. Uh, at that point, it was just all bets are off, run back down the path. And I don't think anyone stopped until they made it to their cabins. Um, now, I happen to have been friends with the archery director that same night. He and uh, one of his buddies decided, well, we're a little too tired. No, no, go on without us on that Hessian hike. And then eh, about an hour later, look at each not an hour later, maybe 30 minutes, look at each other and go. So I know a back way up there. You want to go up there and scare them? And the answer is never no. So <laughs> they go ahead and they set out uh, up a back way through one of the northern sections of the camp to try to get to the Hessian village from behind. And the goal there was to kind of set up shop in some of the bushes. And then when they got up there and they're freaking each other out, you know, go ahead and rustle the leaves and make some noises and, you know, throw some rocks just to scare, really scare them. They never knew that that group never made it up that night. But that's okay because apparently the Hessian village had plans for them too. So they try to make their way up there and they wind up getting lost in this waste. This is the weird part. It is a waist high thicket of mountain laurel. And for those of you that know anything about mountain laurel specifically, waist high is not how you would describe it. And it's definitely not impassable. It's kind of this gnarly bush grows up to about six, maybe seven feet, uh, a little taller than that. Doesn't grow very close together. But mountain laurel it was, and they were getting scraped, they were getting cut up trying to get through this incredibly impenetrable thicket until eventually they're they're truly lost. Uh, the terrain looks nothing like what they know it to be. Uh, things just don't look familiar, and they eventually stop and they get to a clearing. And this was, again, the early 2000s, so one of them had a flip phone with just enough juice left to make a phone call. And uh, very, very intelligently, I have to say, they call down to the camp office and the camp director happened to be there doing some paperwork up late. And so he gets on the horn. He was a, that guy was a hoot. He was this retired Vietnam Colonel, really no nonsense, but uh, they give him a call and explain the situation. And in, in true fashion for this guy, he just kind of sits there like, well, what the hell do you want me to do? I mean, I can sound the alarm if you want. And they're like, no, no, don't wake the camp up for us. We did something stupid. Like, don't, don't, don't get the campers up. Uh, hey, can you sound? There's an alarm system over the intercom in camp. Whether there's a fire, whether there's a swimming emergency, um, you know, he they ask, can you sound the all clear? No one will think twice about it. It won't get everybody mobilized or the camp, you know, set to evacuate or go to a safe po point. And he goes, well, all right, I think I can do that. And so. They're blaring the all clear signal off of the intercom off of the administration building. And these guys were able to ultimately use that like a lighthouse and make their way out. Um, that is not the last time that the woods would alter for people that are up there. You said that that's something that happens pretty frequently with these stories, right? There seems to be something in the area around the Hessian village and the mists that can surround it that caused the terrain perhaps to change. Yeah, and it's it's super uncanny. I've um before I go into the first time that I went up there, there were recountings of the path disappearing, 
um, newer new growth there. It's always new growth. It's never old stuff, but it's always new growth that wasn't there or you swear it's not there. It doesn't belong um, to odd weather events. You know, there'll be times where it is absolutely you're walking on the trail there and it just starts pouring rain. Uh, and we are talking like utter downpour or if it's a if it's cold enough snow, just white out conditions, uh, the weather just in those woods gets bad enough that you turn back. And then by the time you hit that open field and come out, come out of the woods, uh, there will be signs that it had freshly snowed or that it had just rained. The grass is wet, uh, but the sun will be shining. And there there are multiple stories, uh, multiple stories corroborating this, you know, of things like this happening. Um, my brother has a couple. There are a few other staff members I, you know, I know and keep in touch with that can tell you <laughs> that can tell you these just incredibly weird occurrences. Um, so we're definitely going to talk to your brother at some point soon. I know he's agreed to be on the show in the future. Matt. Uh, he's quite a character, uh, runs in the family, and he has some he has some astounding stories, which I even have a hard time fitting into the lore. But we've talked a lot since what we've experienced at the Hessian Village and all of these background stories. We have our own theories, perhaps by now, what's going on. That is something that we'll examine down the road, but goodness gracious, yeah, it is a it is a font of weird. No, absolutely. This place is weird as all get out. Uh, it's just, weird with rules. It is. It is weird, but there's rules. There's this there's this odd kind of like system. And if you know and respect the system, you'll probably be fine. Let's talk about the system. A little bit because then i know that you've had there there was your very unique experience then we're going to talk about ours but let's talk a bit about the rules you mentioned the bird yep so bird the bird thing. the bird's a big one i have never in all of my times up there experienced the bird i'd like to put and it that... sounds like folklore I, oh it's 100 like percent folklore it's right up our I alley i know that there's weird things that happen there and i've I will say, folks, this is is a bit of a taste. I've seen things there. There is something happening there. The bird thing I don't buy. I, I, I think when people know that a place is strange, they're going to come up with ways to make it make sense to them. I'm skeptical of the bird. So probably for, for good reason. I'm a little skeptical of the bird, too. Um, I've been up there quite a lot. Uh, again, never learning from my mistakes and deciding to never go back. But um, I've never encountered the bird. But what I have encountered is when you're walking along the path, probably along the first third, there is a fallen tree and the rootstock. I mean, I, I used to say towers over the path because I was younger and shorter back then. But uh, it's it's a good seven, eight foot tall root ball that's hanging over this path where the tree fell that spot that's the one you get past that and things start to get weird from there that uh, happened in whiskey hollow you know yeah. there there's there's a natural demarcation of something's territory that's right 
and we definitely strayed into something here. Uh, once you pass that fallen tree, that's when you start to get that tingle and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. That's when you kind of start feeling the electricity in the air. Uh, as you continue deeper into the woods, that's when sort of that creeping feeling of being watched kicks in. Uh, and it only gets weird from there. Uh, sometimes you get missed. Sometimes you don't. I've had both happen. Uh, the mist I saw is the mist. Yeah, you did. You got to see some yep. of the mist. Uh, you didn't see it in full blown mess up your day mode. No. Um, the unlucky me. Yeah, when we when we get to my encounter, I'll talk about how absolutely just confounding the mist can get. Now, one other thing before you get to your encounter, because this is going to come into play. Um, I want to impress upon people as well the kind of area that we're in. This isn't the kind of place where if you continue to wander, you'll never be found. It, it, this, There are roads in pretty much every direction here, right? Right. So this is actually really important. In my story and in previous ones, you talk about people getting lost for hours. I want to make this totally clear. You know, if you continue on to the north, you're going to hit the summer camp next door. If you continue to the east, you're going to hit the pond. If you continue to the west, you're going to hit people's houses. If you go south, you're back at the field. Like there is you can wander for a while. But you cannot walk in one direction more than an hour without hitting something. So this is something that comes up a lot with certain regions. And just based on where we're located, a lot of our stories are going to feature the Adirondacks or Connecticut. One thing I would impress upon listeners is with Connecticut in the Catskill region, there is a lot of wilderness. There's a lot of great outdoor, but it doesn't take long to hit a road might not be a busy road. Someone at some point in time plowed a road in the middle of that. No, absolutely. It's it's very hard to stay lost as long as you're not going in circles. So with that, um, I, I just wanted to kind of put some of the geography in place, some of the rules of what we expect. Uh, you did a great job putting the history out there. Tell us your spooky story. Right. So... Not the Christmas one. That's coming. But it's when coming, I was, folks. It is it's a good one. But when uh, I was just starting out as a young staff member, I, I dove headfirst into this lore. I thought it was just so neat and I ate it right up. Um, I went there in the daytime. I used some of the geocaching hiking GPSs that we had in my area to map out the route and plot it and save it into the GPS. Um, I would make sure to take like compass bearings because I'd, I'd heard the stories about how you can get lost. And I walked the path during the daytime several times. I found the old dugout, you know, pits in the foundations. And man, the first thing I thought to myself was, how could you possibly get turned around in here? This is so straightforward. The trail is blazed. It's not, wasn't the best at the time, but it's fairly obvious. Uh, you have solid landmarks. I mean, right before you get into the village, you cross a stream and you go up a little bit of a hill and continue about 50 feet. And there it is. You know, it's a bit overgrown. You've got to do some looking, but it, it's it's right there. And then to get to the path, you just go right back down the hill and across the stream. Um, but it's it's a summer camp. 
word gets around, you know, nothing, nothing stays secret there. So another staff member goes up and goes, hey, man, I heard you're digging into like the Hessian village and whatnot. Would you be cool bringing a group of us up after dark? And I'm like, yeah, yes, absolutely. This is going to be great. So we uh, we get ready for the following night. And there were about nine of us total. And we start making our way up the path and through the woods. And we, lo and behold, we hit that fallen section of tree. Things start to feel absolutely weird. Um, tingling on the back of the neck, feeling of being watched. And as we continue into the woods, this mist sets in. And it was unlike anything I'd ever encountered. It was... It wasn't fog, but I don't know that I'd fully call it mist. It was almost like it was, like, not mist, but misting out. Like, not quite drizzled, but it wasn't wet. It was almost like the air was filled with dust. Um, it it was so weird, and I've never, I've never run into anything else quite like it. Uh, but the big thing that it did was it limited visibility, and it killed the range on our flashlights. Like a decent flashlight you could see maybe 30 30 plus feet into the woods well congratulations kids now you're down to like 15 feet of visibility which makes sticking to the path and keeping on top of you know where you are really difficult uh finding landmarks forget it but we make our way through it is getting progressively creepier uh the deeper we go into the woods like that just feeling of off wrongness and something watching you is just intensifying but we do make it to the stream we get across we get up the hill we get to the village and i will never forget but this guy says so here we are the hessian village Ooh, spooky right and in stereotypical horror movie fashion it it just so happened to be one of one of the girls one of the female counselors that was like okay this is seriously like freaking me out we need to go back so we go ahead and we go back. We cross the go down the hill. We go across the stream. We start following the path back. We're following the blazes and things seem to be fine. And then I look down and there's a whole lot of little shoots of new growth right where the path should be. And I go, well, that's weird. And I turn around and there's the path. And I turn back around and there is no path. <laughs> so... I look at the group and I look back and they're like, what? did did you lose it? And I'm like, no, th this this should be it. That's the trail. There's the blaze. And that's not trail anymore. And eventually they're like, so what do we do? And I was like, well, camp is 20 minutes that way. We know this is the right direction. Let's go. About two hours later, we're still wandering around in the woods and no closer to finding our way back. Um, no repeating landmarks. We're not walking in circles. Uh, that was one of the first things we were watching for. Just because there, with that mist, there was no visual reference. So you needed to kind of be aware if you were going in a circle or not. And we eventually stop. And another staff member's like, hey, we were hiking up in the Adirondacks or up on the northern tier. And when we would get lost or lose the trail, we would have everybody spread out three feet apart. And then we would just walk in a line and go until we found the trail. So that's exactly what we did. 
And lo and behold, maybe 15 seconds into this, someone's like, oh, sweet, found the path. We get back on the path. And we're facing the right direction. And we were going the right way the whole darn time. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we don't think a ton of it at that point. We just want out of the woods. This has been creepy. Not not a bust. We made it up there. Uh, but definitely creepy. Definitely turned around. Um, but we get on the path and we're like, okay, good. Now we can just get out of here. And that's when I hear it out in the woods to our right. It was probably about 50 feet off, but you'd occasionally hear footsteps and branches snapping. There was something walking parallel to us, and it was something pretty big. Now, if you've been out in the woods and you've heard squirrels or chipmunks going through the underbrush, they actually make a shocking amount of noise. This was not that. This sounded like something large making its way not very gracefully through the woods off to our right. And it was following us for quite some time. Uh, we got about halfway back down the path out of the woods and it never broke pace. It was tracking us the entire darn time and you couldn't see it through the mist until at one point on the path, I heard a branch snap and it sounded a lot closer uh, we're talking like within definitely within visual range. So I kind of played it cool and sort of ignored it for a second. And then a split second later, I was at the back of the line for everyone's reference. I whipped my flashlight around right to where it is. And I will never forget it. Um, I see what looks like in outline just at the edge of the mist. Uh, what looks to be a, a person's in like in profile, but just their shoulder down to their elbow, and then their knee down to the bottom of their foot. And it, like? it 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 looked like someone was crouching, um, crouching or trying to move in sort of a low posture. Uh, the the coat they were wearing was a fairly bright green. And it looked like they were wearing white pants and a very tall black boots. And as soon as the light hit, there was like a brief instant of, oh, God, I'm spotted. And then I just watched this thing take a deliberate step to its side back into the mist. And I stood there for a second, not fully trusting that I saw what I saw until I look and I turn at the next staff member in front of me. And he looks back at me and his eyes are as wide as dinner plates. And he is just white. <laughs> and that's when I eventually, like, after a second, did did you? And he just, like, nods his head and he is terrified. And I don't, I don't know why I made this decision. But I look at him and I go, we can't tell the others. At least not until we're out. They're already freaked out as it is. We just need to focus on getting out of here. And I did bless the guy. He agreed to it. Um, but we um, we eventually make it back to that fallen tree. And the lo and behold, the mists dramatically start to clear. And things start to get less weird until by the end of it, we walk out into that open field. 
and there were, there's no more feeling of being watched, no more electricity, and it is a bright, clear night with a sky full of stars. Now, Jack, would you describe to the listeners what a Hessian uniform looks like? Oh, absolutely. So Hessian mercenaries uh, were usually garbed in a bright green brocade jacket with white trousers and black boots. Oh, so good. Yeah, that one was, uh, I, I didn't sleep well the rest of that week. <laughs> well, that one, when you told me, uh, tempted me to come visit you at some point to Connecticut to visit the Hessian village myself. Now, I remember that was January. What year was that? That's a good question. My goodness. That had to be, I think, 20... 2016 2018 2016 yeah maybe like 2017 it was in one of those it was it was it was that time now i know that i've been talking a big game about our christmas ghost story but full disclosure when i hear jack tell his story again i don't know that's a really good one now i remember we had spent the day leading up to that point in time I came over to your house, I settle in, and we're we're slowly gearing up because we're planning to go, you know, at some point later in the day over to the to the camp area and to the Hessian village. And your brother wasn't planning originally to come with us. Matt Matt had his own plans for the day. He always he's like a cat. He's always just doing mysterious things. Um Every time I see him, he's he's baking a new kind of bread or or he's like weaving herbs or, hey, I've got a medieval axe I'm testing. Um, but uh, this time he, he we were saying, oh, hey, we're going to the Hessian village. He's like, oh, I've seen some pretty crazy stuff there. And he's like, I don't know. And I said, I, I have a feeling. I have a feeling we're going to see something crazy tonight. And God bless him. He grabs his jacket. He goes, OK. If you're sure he he was like, you know what, if nothing else, this is going to be a great story. So. uh, We don't need to regale, I think, all. The details of the who am I kidding? We're here to tell the story. Oh, no, we are. So a little bit of lead up. It was just after Christmas and it was right before New Year's and. We kind of got it in our heads that maybe maybe the Hessians are kind of like lonely and forgotten up there. Maybe a cool thing to do would be to bring them a little Christmas something. And so Matt, who was taking German at the time, learned a few learned a few words to say in German, like an old German Christmas carol. And, you know, we brought along some alcohol and some pipe tobacco, thinking like, oh, those are all things that Hessian soldiers like. If we sort of make an offering to them, maybe it's a nice gesture and, you know, they'd appreciate it. Now, I I will also say that for for any folks who have listened to Hellier, who've watched Hellier, if you haven't, that's that's going to be required uh, reading for you all. But um. There is a repeating motif. They mentioned at some point in time how uh, 
offerings of alcohol and tobacco were were considered for a variety of beings. So keep that in mind as well. No, 100 um, percent. But we go ahead, we pile in and we start making our way up to we start making our way up to the village and we go ahead, we park and there's like a foot of snow on the ground in the field. And that definitely kind of set the uh, that set the tone and it set the mood really well. So we're now trudging through the middle of the woods, you know, just between Christmas and New Year's. It is indeed a cold and clear winter's night uh, as we start trudging our way along the path to get there. I remember that very clearly. I, I remember there were a variety of wooden structures for the camp proper, and they were outlining a large field you felt very in the open um and then the forest was just a line of trees uh trees naked in the winter um amid the snow to a very dark forest no and i want to also impress that this forest when you are standing at the edge of this forest you're not seeing lights of houses you're not seeing civilization on the other end. There's just a winter field. And beyond that, there is the woods. It's a very simple, it's a very simple place that we are entering. And a part of that let us really get in the mindset of this this winter time adventure. Uh, we felt very remote. Uh, already there was something very enchanting to it, but not scary. Exactly. It felt kind of fairy tale esque, if I could. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and you're seeing you're seeing the breath come out in front of you. Your your nostrils are are freezing, um, and you know we're getting ready to sing carols to ghosts. So as we're making our way up along the path, uh, we start getting that eerie feeling. And it is right around the time that you cross that fallen tree. And I started feeling the electricity. You know, I kind of asked the other the others how they were feeling, and they sort of agreed. They're like, okay, it's kind of getting a little a little funky. Um, I went off path a couple we went off path a couple times where one of would one of us would stay on the path with a light, and we might once or twice we wandered off the path 10, 20 feet. Why did we do that? So I think part of it was we were trying to test out the geography altering properties. You know, okay. is it something we could get to trip it? Um, and we, I think we were also trying to see, like, is it localized to the path? Will something weird happen if we wander off? Um, what I will say is we did wind up seeing something. It We, we ended up seeing something at the end of the path. Um, I... Oh, that's right. You didn't see them on the way in. Hold on, rewind. You had saw you had seen them on the way you had seen them on the way in. Brief flashes, but I wasn't sure that I was seeing I wasn't sure that I was actually seeing them. Okay, well how about you describe them? This this part is new to me. I I thought I didn't realize that you'd seen something before that point in time. So right around the time that we were getting close to the we never quite made it to the village proper but we got we got damn near there um 
But when we started getting really close, I started seeing what I thought to be little flits of light off in the trees. And they were probably 60, 70 feet away. No miss this time, which was great. This ability was perfect. Um, But I didn't think much of it. I figured maybe it was just a little bit of light reflecting off snow that was just catching me weird. And that's why I didn't bring it up. Yeah, I I don't think afterwards we really talked about that because there were so many significant things that happened afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I guess why it's important to talk about these things after the fact. Here we are. Now, this was not a difficult path, and I want to make that clear because this was my first time on this path. And, the, and much like Jack early on when he went by daylight was thinking, what's the big deal? On my way in, I felt off, but but something that happens a lot is you're going to feel off when walking through a strange wood at night. There's no way around that. And as they're saying, oh, we're getting close. I'm thinking it's been 20 minutes. This is nothing. And I'd been a little disappointed because, yeah, I, I felt I felt an electricity in the air. But again, I'm walking through a winter fairy tale. While two people who I trust say this is very haunted and it feels strange right now. So so I, I know that I'm going to feel this way. I was starting to feel a little crestfallen as we were getting close to the the end of the path and where the village would begin. So we do get there. I still we have to get you out there to see the village proper. Again, it's not much of a visual site, but just to be there is pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I but- never got so I never got to the village proper. Uh, that no, is something. no. There were mists that had started to rise. That was strange. Towards the end of the path, we were getting a thick, foggy mist rising from a foot of snow. A and, very strange combination. And it was right about there that we're like, eh, this is probably close enough. I don't think we're going to be able to find our way to the actual village itself. So we didn't quite make it to the village proper. But we hit that point in the path where we were just about there and decided, all right, this is close enough. So as the mist started rising off of the snow and amid an otherwise cold, very clear winter's night surrounded by nothing but quiet, wintry woods, uh, we sort of decided to set up for our impromptu offering. Um, while Matt got his lyrics out, I lit up my pipe. There was, you know, the lovely aroma of that unmistakable sort of rich, nutty, earthy tobacco smell uh, as the embers burned. Um, there was pouring out of a little bit of rum, steam rising from the snow where the alcohol landed, uh, as Matt prepped his lyrics and began to sing. And we each had... Um, some words for the spirits at that point in time. We had stated how we knew that it had probably been many Christmases that have come and gone um, since they had been alive. And that Christmas had just happened. And we were giving these offerings as a part of that time of year, that celebration. We evoked how Christmas was a time of home and how far they were from home. And it was also a time of memory and how they were not forgotten. 
as Jack's brother began singing Silent Night in German, and the smell of the pipe tobaccos in the air, I saw in front of me a ball of orange light move deliberately through the trees. This was not an orb seen in the corner of one's eye. This was magic. A lot of the time when people look into the paranormal, they can begin to doubt what they've seen. Or they can build a sort of cynicism to the things that they have seen. In that moment, seeing that ball of light in front of me, that was magic. And it wasn't a fleeting moment because one shot from the right towards the left, another moved farther in the trees from my left towards my right, slower, bobbing up and down four feet over the snow. There were several of these orbs moving around, not hiding from us, not withdrawing from us. They were as there as the three of us were. And while the feeling of discomfort was still there, none of us really felt threatened by them either. Um, no. In fact, it was almost like this weird brief feeling of I don't want to say like safety, reassurance. It felt we did something right. Yeah. No, it really did. Uh, and that was, that was a very memorable moment there deep in the middle of the woods with the two of you, uh, while these orbs of light are just dancing around us after we've done this offering. We, we thought that we would end on, a high note we had no reason to stick around honestly i wanted us to be the first to leave because i didn't want the disappointment of seeing those things fade away so we turned around and as we left on this walk we continued to see these orbs to our sides they did they flanked us the whole way out and it was after we'd gotten underway that I'd started to get the first feeling of foreboding. Um, I was taking up the back, and it almost felt for the entire way back that there was almost a hand on the center of my back gently pushing me down the path. Matt had described the same thing. And I believe he was in the middle. And he had even said out loud as we were moving, he thought that we had garnered enough goodwill with the Hessians where they were guiding us out. That's really what it felt like. We were flanked by these orbs um, that were about, you know, 10, 15 feet back in the trees, but clearly now moving alongside us and moving in tandem with us. Um, that combined with that, you know, gentle but insistent push.
pushing feeling on on my back. Uh, it it almost felt like we were being led out of the woods. Like that was very nice and thank you, but you really need to go. We continued our way back towards that entrance and it had completely changed. We entered the field again and on the other side of the field was our car. I stop and I turn around. I look back at the tree line. Already I'm wondering, did we see what we saw? And we did because there again, like, like candles being held by figures in the trees. There were more orbs. Now these orbs were not like the ones seen by the village. The the ones by the village that I saw, I would estimate were the size of a baseball. Now, Jack, you had seen others that were at a different distance closer that you had said were larger like a basketball, if that's correct. Yes, uh, specifically the ones we were looking back across the field into the woods. Uh, that distance and the size that they were at that distance, basketball would have been a very accurate size. Uh, they were big, and there were about three or four of them almost heat-hazing their way in between the trees. And we're standing there, and I remember discussing particularly with Matt about that theory of Hessians guiding us out. And the, the, the implication there is if the Hessians are guiding us out and the Hessians had disappeared in the first place, that there was some deeper part to the lore. And I remember saying out loud, what if the thing that haunts this wood aren't Hessians at all? And that was the moment we felt awful as the wind began to pick up. So the wind blew up from one of the trails leading deeper into camp uh, with just this huge roaring gust uh, that almost, you know, it, it almost made us step back, uh, move back a step with just how sudden and how forceful it was. And that was when any feeling of safety that we got from that field, which was supposed to be like the everything's okay zone, uh, suddenly we just all got a feeling of dread. And it suddenly felt like something very big was coming for us very fast. Uh, ben and I looked down that trail. My brother actually looked back toward the woods, toward the village. And it was, uh, oh, it was, it was fight or flight, 100%. Uh, the interesting part is all three of us, without a word to each other, were reaching for our knives and then almost at the same time realized those are not going to do a yep. darn thing. I remember that. It was, it was, it was so strange. What makes three, three sapient mammals at the exact same point in time all have the same reaction to something unseen? And we reach for our weapons. Then, yeah, uh, immediately we all have that reaction of like, <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Like, it, if it wants us dead, we're dead. It, We ran. We turned and we ran. This went from a silent, a literal silent night. 
and then we're fleeing night on bald mountain this is a terrible feeling in the wind the wind seemed to feel like it was a build-up to something terrible that was going to happen we broke we ran back to that car and to this day anytime the three of us are together and we start talking our theories about what is happening at the hessian village we feel watched it can take hours to shake that off no it's true uh anytime that we discuss this together the three of us it just suddenly feels like something far away has taken notice now if i can make a a brief announcement jack i don't know if this is too soon no no not at all what do you think okay we are going back we are going back actually january 2023 and we're going to be spending the night at one of the cabins after uh, kicking this beehive again and after it's definitely anticipating our return what with every time we talk about our plans about coming back we feel very watched Um, but we will be back there uh january so i will say i have not i've been back to the camp but i have not been back to that field i have not looked at that path since this happened um specifically because i was more than a little worried about what might be waiting for us but um yeah, we're uh, we're ripping the bandaid off, folks, and we'll be spending a weekend up there at the camp um, and absolutely investigating the village again. So if all goes well, that's going to be our February 2023 episode. Um, now, thank you so much for listening to a little bit of a history of Christmas ghost stories, a Christmas ghost story of our own. And then uh, finally... Uh, Another surprise that we had for today for you uh, is a very special announcement. So before we go into uh, before we go into our finale and wind down for the evening, we do have a special surprise for you. So we will actually be releasing a special episode on Christmas Eve that is going to kick off a brand new old tradition that we are starting this year. And we are happily calling it Yule Nights Are For Ghosts. It is going to be a collection of Christmas ghost stories. We're bringing it back. Uh, This is going to be a yearly event. Uh, We're actually looking to bring some additional people in on this, too. But we are super pumped to reignite this Christmas tradition, maybe even over a bowl of Charles Dickens's burning Christmas punch. Oh, what a joy that would be. And to be clear... These are fiction, fictional Christmas ghost stories. Um, We are going to take a step back from our horrifying true tales so that on Christmas Eve, right in your podcatcher, you will have a small repository of Christmas ghost stories for the fire. I guess we did need that disclaimer, huh? Yeah, it's going to be really important for us. Uh, Now, I'm going to go into some shopkeeping, folks, but please stick around because at the end, 
I'm going to give you that cider recipe that I brought up last time. Uh, first of all, something that we neglected to bring up in episode one, our social Whoops. media. Please, <laughs> whoopsies, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Haunt and Gather. Uh, there's also our blog. Our blog is hauntgather.com. Uh, no and there, just hauntgather.com. Um, it is a, a modest blog. We've put some articles up there, uh, including a link to the Christmas cider that, again, I promise, stick around. I'm going to definitely give you. Uh, also, I wanted to bring up that in episode one, I had mentioned that there was a place called 13 Curves in Syracuse. Uh, we actually explore that a little bit in a podcast that uh, I I had the privilege of uh, uh, guesting on, uh, which is Haunted 518, that is hosted by Juliana Haledi. Fantastic podcast where she goes into a lot of the ghost stories of the New York State Capital Region, Hudson Valley. That's the 518 area code. Um, the episode which I feature in is the Haunted 315. That is the Syracuse, New York uh, area code, my hometown uh, where I was born and raised. So uh, we're going to talk about 13 Curves on that episode. We talk about the Split Rock Quarry that I also mentioned in passing in episode one. And you can hear me tell, uh, once again, the rendition of Whiskey Hollow abridged. Uh, finally, I want to let you know that uh, we have more notes to come on Whiskey Hollow itself. Maybe even a fourth time we were there. Who knows? Now, alas, that's cider. Oh, let I me tell you waiting. about that cider. Okay, so the apple cider is very simple. You can approach this one of two ways. You can do it the boozy way or the not boozy way. But so either way... There's one way. <laughs> uh, there, there's there's one way unless you're sober, Jack. Okay, fine. Now, either way, it's going to be a hot cider. What you're going to want to do is probably measure out the cider in cups that you're going to be drinking out of first. So if you've got three coffee mugs you're going to do a cider, go ahead and fill up three mugs of cider and pour it into a pot. Leave a little bit of room because we're going to be adding stuff to it. Once you've got your apple cider heating up, you're going to be adding some unsalted butter, some dark brown sugar, some coarse salt, some cinnamon, some nutmeg, and some clove. Notes about the spices. Get fresh. Get fresh. If you can't, you can't. I understand it. I respect it. But... You're going to want to get a mortar and pestle one of these days and actually just beat up some of those cloves. It's going to be so good. Get a grater. Cut that cut that nutmeg up to smithereens. Once you have this mixture of spices, you're going to want to, to knead that butter until the butter itself is holding all of the cinnamon, nutmeg, clove, and salt. Uh, you're going to then mix that with an equal portion of brown sugar. However big that ball of butter is how much brown sugar you're then going to stir in there as well. It's still now going to be cohesive. You can make a ball of it, but it's going to be really soft. You're going to divide that equally 
into three. If you made a bunch of it, that's okay. Because you can roll it into a little Yule log, put some powdered sugar over it, make it real presentable. You can save it. Keep it in your fridge. Cut off a little bit with your butter knife. Put it in more hot cider. Let that butter dissolve into the hot cider. And then go ahead and add a little bit of rum if you want. That's it. It's that simple. Then you're going to want to listen to this podcast. And you're going to want to find a haunted road and have a horrifying experience that will change your life. I'd like to point out, ladies and gentlemen, that last step, mandatory. It's very important. It's part of the recipe. And if you want, again, to to look at this written down, uh, I promise you only have to scroll through a little bit of my life story to get to the recipe itself on the site. Uh, That's going to be at hauntgather.com hauntgather.com thank you so much folks for listening again you will get an episode from us christmas eve with yule nights are for ghosts volume one until then have a good night everyone and stay safe out there haunt and gather a paranormal podcast exploring the new American folklore in the great outdoors is written and produced by Benjamin Begensky and Jack Krisky. Our theme song into the red light is used with permission and performed by Beezus Taylor and the funeral party. You can find her album, the ghost hunters handbook on Spotify and YouTube.